Welcome to the Resonate Boise Sermons Podcast. Today, we'll be hearing from our site pastor, Jonah Link, as he continues our sermon series going through the book of Mark. There's something that all of us have in common in this room that is incredibly important to our well-being, our our living in this world. It's incredibly important to us, and it might look different for all of us, all in the same. For some of us, this thing could be our greatest joy, something that we grew up in and we look back on with just like wide eyes, and we're like, this is incredible, such a great experience for me. It shaped me who I am today. It's made me into the person to be able to accomplish incredible things in this world already in my young life. All of us are, are young. And for some of us, it could be quite the opposite. It could be the source of a lot of pain and grief and sorrow and traumatic experiences that you're trying to work through right now. I think family is something that we all have a really deep need for, whether you recognize it or not. Maybe you're starting to recognize either how valuable family was throughout your childhood and into this moment, or um, you look back at it and you're realizing, man, I wish I had it. I wish I had something like that. Well, a month or so ago, I met up with some dads in the valley, and we were working through this book by John Tyson called The Intentional Father. Basically just trying to figure out, like, how do we be really intentional dads to our sons and daughters? And we started talking about how our father interacted with us and sharing stories and memories from our experience and our upbringing. Some of the dads had really traumatic and difficult stories. I was not one of those and I'm really, really thankful for it. But often when you're told to remember back to something and think through it, some of us can tend to go towards the negative of it, right? We can tend to think, oh, I would do this better. Maybe I would have operated differently as a father in this way and where my dad might have failed even. Maybe that's something that your mind would initially go to. Well, fatherhood in America, I mean, that's its own problem to solve. But Jesus, Jesus cares about fatherhood, sure, but he also cares about family. He cares about the family unit, our family of origin, if you will. And so Jesus, or for Jesus, family, it's something much bigger than just our family of origin. Though it's something that we all have a really, really deep need for. For those of us with like a tough upbringing, that you'd look back on your experience and say, I have a lot of trauma, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of grief that you've experienced. My hope for you today is that as you hear about how Jesus views family, you'd leave with a ton of hope, a ton of encouragement, a ton of encouragement as you leave this place because Jesus' family is available to you. I just want to start with that. Secondarily, if you had an incredible upbringing, say you grew up in the Christian church, your parents were amazing to you, taught you how to follow after Jesus, my hope that you would still long for something even greater than that, because that is the picture that Jesus gives to us in the story that we're going to work through in Mark. And so whichever experience that you've had, maybe you're somewhere in between, I think there is something incredible for you in the word today. And my intention today isn't to make those of you with a difficult family upbringing to sit in those awful, difficult experiences. That is not at all my intention, but it's rather to fill you with hope. 
And so my hope for each of you as you sit here is to really press in today. Really think and understand what Jesus is trying to convey to us about family. So today we're going to get into how Jesus describes and took part in his family life. And so according to Pew Research, families in America are in rather rough shape. Divorce is on the rise, cohabitation, remarriages, they're up as well. And two-parent households are on a steep decline, like a very steep decline. And so if you were just to look at the research, the family unit as a whole is rather broken in America. And I think the church is the one that needs to redeem a lot of what's broken within that. And beyond the family unit somewhat falling apart in America, I think we also can look within the Christian church and see that there's also a real problem when it comes to the idolization of family. I think we can tend to idolize the family unit, though it's a really, really good biblical thing that we can see all throughout Scripture that is good for us. We can still tend to idolize that good thing for college students. Think about this for a second. I was in this seat as well, so hear me out when I say this. You might care far more about what your parents think about what you do post-college than what God cares about what you do with your life right now or post-college. You might care more about what your family and your parents think about you than what God thinks about you and or is commanding you to do. For postgrads, it might look like caring more about that job that you're going to get than seeking to hear what the Lord has created you to do. They might go one and the same, but you also could find yourself idolizing that idea of what family could look like one day. Think about having children getting married, all of those things. They're, they're fantastic. They're biblical. They're awesome. Part of why God created us even. But it could be so easy for us to idolize those good gifts from God instead of pressing in to Christ. Parents, it could look like valuing your Sunday routine as a family unit over serving the body of Christ. It could look like some of those things. Idolizing your uh, like Thanksgiving and, not, and saying no one's welcome besides my immediate family into my Thanksgiving experience. This is our routine. So that college student that doesn't have a place to go, doesn't have a family to run to, we don't have space for them. It can really easily for the church look like idolizing family. And so though there might, might seem like the family unit and what I've communicated so far, the family unit is in dire straits in America and you could make that argument. I think what we're experiencing now isn't necessarily unique to us. I think what we're about to look at in scripture, we're gonna find three groups of people that have a specific relationship to Jesus. Two of them not so good, and one of them who we want to be. And so I'm going to start with the two that we don't want to be. We're going to look at three groups, one being Jesus' family, like his family of origin. That's the first group of people that pops up in this story. Secondarily, the scribes. We've talked about the scribes and the Pharisees a little bit up to this point. Scribes are the teachers of God's law, know it inside and out, have crazy high moral uh, character, and then the third group that we see are the disciples, Jesus' disciples. And so by the end of the text today, we're going to read a very surprising claim that Jesus has for his followers and for he would, who he would consider to be family. So if you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 20 through 35 today, and we're going to slowly work through it all. Starting in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered. 
so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. So Jesus, he's just come down from a mountaintop where he has called his 12 disciples to follow after him and to cast out demons and just appointed them to be his disciples and his apostles throughout the world. And so Jesus comes down from this house or into this house and odds are it's in Capernaum again where he does the majority of his earthly ministry. And they come back to this place and it says that they don't even have room to eat. Like there are so many people that have followed Jesus to this house that his disciples can't even share a meal together. So naturally the crowds are following Jesus again. He's incredibly, incredibly famous at this point in his ministry. And just like Renee was talking about, the first thing that came to my mind when it came to the scope of Jesus's fame is Taylor Swift, right? Like the chick is so incredibly famous and I don't personally understand it, but I do watch a lot of football and I do notice that they pan to her quite often. She gets quite a bit more airtime than some of those players at this point in time. And as we read through the gospel of Mark, the crowds following after Jesus, if you need something to picture in your mind, just think about Taylor Swift for a minute. Like, People are following her around like crazy. She has security guards left and right to protect her. If you were to read a little bit before this section in Mark, you notice that Jesus retreats because he's in fear of getting trampled. Maybe kind of similar with Taylor Swift. She's probably a little bit smaller than Jesus. I don't know. Um, Maybe Jesus was a little bit bigger. Who knows? Um, But ultimately, this picture of Taylor Swift might help you get a glimpse into the fame of Jesus. He's healing people casting out demons, and everyone wants to be around him so much so that they are surrounding his house. They can't eat a meal. So much so that his parents and the people that are closest to Jesus are saying he is absolutely out of his mind. So imagine yourself being a relative, a very close relative of someone like Taylor Swift, someone of that sort of fame. That might get kind of obnoxious really quick, right? can't even eat a meal in the quiet of your home anymore because people are flooding your house. You can't go out to eat anymore. You can't go to sporting events. You can't go do anything because you're always going to have people surrounding you. I imagine this is what Jesus is currently experiencing, what his family even is experiencing. And so what we see from this part of the text is that Jesus' own family, his family of origin, his biological family won't even vouch for him won't even advocate for Jesus himself in this moment. It's kind of crazy. And so that's the first group of people that we see. And we'll get back to them at the end of the text. Second group of people, the scribes. This text goes into identifying this group of people. Again, we've talked about them multiple times. But this interaction, after what we just read in the text, it kind of feels out of left field or you've read so much of Mark at this point and it's given you so much whiplash that you're like, oh, nothing's out of left field anymore. But the scribes, they come to Jesus and they have a sense of self-righteousness and pride to them where they think they have it all figured out. They think they have everything figured out. They know God's law the best. They live into it the best out of everyone according to their standards. And so the scribes, they totally thought that they were a part of God's family, if not the top tier of God's family. That's their perspective more than likely coming into this interaction with Jesus, that they are more a part of God's family than anyone else. 
It's probably what the scribes are thinking. And this is what they say to Jesus in verse 22. It reads, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Without getting into all of these words specifically and who Beelzebul is, the scribes are essentially claiming that Jesus is in cahoots with Satan. Like he is working with Satan and that's where he is receiving all of his power, which is absolutely a bold claim. And this is Jesus' response. Verse 23. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. This is what he says. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot even stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So Jesus, in all these little arguments, all these little parables right here, he is essentially using very simple logic to completely dismantle this argument from the scribes. It's like, this makes zero sense. Why would Satan himself cast out demons that are on the same team as him? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Do you understand what you are saying? And then Jesus goes on to say something even more deep. Verse 28, truly I tell you, and he's talking to the scribes, people can be forgiven all their sins, and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, he says this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. We could spend a bunch of time just sorting through this couple of verses and getting into eternal sin and this whole idea but I don't necessarily think it's going to be the most helpful thing for us sorting out this thesis of Jesus' view of family. So I'm going to do a, a short little bit on what is going on here. And if you want to learn more about this, I'd love to have a conversation with you. But I want to keep us on track with this idea of Jesus' family. But blasphemy is called an eternal sin because of the state of the heart of the people he is communicating it to. For someone to see all of Jesus' wonderful acts up to this point in time, watch him heal the sick, cast out demons. Eventually he's going to raise people from the dead. To see Jesus physically do these things, hear these stories, and to claim that Jesus' power comes from what is evil and not good, your heart has to be so incredibly hard. And that is why Jesus is saying it is unforgivable. It's beyond the scope of repentance. The scribes' hearts are so hard that there, there's no chance for them to be forgiven, is what Jesus is saying. And this stern remark from Jesus, keep in mind, there's a third group. His disciples are near him. And so he's not saying this to the people around him so that he would cause anxiety within his disciples. Just like this phrase, this couple of explanations of their blasphemy isn't intended to induce anxiety in you. That is not the intention. You shouldn't go home and only think about eternal sin. That is not at all what Jesus is trying to communicate. He's not at all trying to communicate that. And so if you have any worry or anxiety as you just read that text, like, oh man, am I walking? Do I have an eternal sin? If you're concerned at all about that, your heart is not hard enough to have an eternal sin. 
So we're going to move on from that. Jesus says these things because they were saying that Jesus was working with Satan, which is blasphemy. And it reveals the hardness of heart and the pride that the scribes are walking in. That is what it's communicating for us. And these men, they thought they were a part of God's family. They thought they obeyed God's law well enough to that they were in the highest standing before God. They thought they were a part of God's family, yet their moral perfection did not gain them access into that family, which is a very important thing for us to know. We get into the third group of people. Mark 3, 31 through 35 starts with this. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they, went, or they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. So Mary's, or Mary and Jesus' brothers show up to this house, stand outside the building. They, they're trying to get him out of there. They think he's crazy, right? We already read that. Think he's out of his mind. So they show up and like, hey, Jesus, we got to get you out of here. I don't know if they want to do an intervention or something with him, but they just want him out of there. Like, you are bringing so much shame and dishonor to our family. We cannot have you in there anymore. I want you out of there. Like, come be with us. Even contextually, if you were to read that phrase at that point in time, it would have been so culturally backwards because you lived with your family. Family units lived in the same complex, multi-generationally. And so for this moment to happen where Jesus is inside a house with his disciples and his biological family to be outside, it's like, that is backwards. That's not how it should be. You should be inside with your family. You should be sharing a meal inside with your family. That's what makes sense. For Jesus to be inside with his disciples and his biological family to be on the outside of those walls makes absolutely no sense. And so Jesus follows this up with verse 33. He says, who are my mothers and my, or my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. The cultural assumption at the time would have been that Jesus needs to honor his family. He needs to honor his biological family. And by honoring his family, it probably would have looked like standing up and walking outside. That's what they believed it would look like to honor their family. And we are supposed to honor our parents. Absolutely, it's a biblical command for us. But Jesus does tend to his family. He does honor his family. His family, according to Jesus, are the ones who do God's will. His family are those that do God's will. This third group of people, the disciples, are sitting around Jesus, circling around him, learning from him, humbly receiving teaching, correction, direction, all of these things. He, they are sitting and receiving from Jesus, unlike his family of origin. That wants nothing, not nothing to do with him, but like, dude, you're crazy. What is going on, Jesus? What are you doing? And so family, according to Jesus, isn't limited to your family of origin, your biological family. It's not limited to that, though it's an incredibly good thing. It's not limited to your parents or your brothers or your sisters. Your family, it could be like the perfect American dream picture of a family. Both parents, two and a half kids, whatever that picture looks like nowadays. Or it could be the most broken family situation that you could think of. Could be the most broken situation. And yet Jesus comes in and says, your family is comprised 
are composed of those that do the will of God. So Jesus isn't aiming to slight his family of origin through this line of questioning and through saying this. He's not aiming to dishonor them whatsoever, but he is aiming to make clear what the family of God looks like. It doesn't look like how we might picture it. He's offering a sobering reminder to those that think they might be a part of God's family and say, you might want to think again. Like, are you operating within God's will? Because those are the people that are within my family. As well, Jesus, I think, is offering hope to the people that might be hearing him that think, there's no way I could get into Jesus' family. I look at the scribes, I look at the Pharisees. They do all this stuff perfectly. They abide by God's law. There's no way I could be invited into God's family. And Jesus offers hope that you are welcome into Jesus' family. And this is, I think, completely reorienting to our worldview, our view of family even. If you were to ask people that had, say, a more favorable upbringing, favorable childhood, born into an incredible situation, they might tell you if you ask them about their family, oh, family means everything to me. I'd give up anything to continue to love and be with my family. That's a great thing. And on the other hand, you might have some people who had a rough childhood, rough upbringing, and they might say they would never trust people enough and let them in close enough to be a part of their quote-unquote family. Like I said, the family unit is great. It's biblical. I'm actually, I have all sorts of ideas for how to build us, each of our individual homes, into strong families as I'm learning alongside you. But Jesus' view of family is not limited to your family of origin. In fact, it seems as though there is a family that is more important to belong to. More important to belong to. C.S. Lewis has this to say. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. You all had zero control on the family you were born into. You all had zero control, absolutely none. You had no control over how your parents raised you. You had no control over what you did on Sundays, whether you attended a church, whether you didn't. Often you rarely have control over your friend groups, depending on where you're placed in school. You had no control over that stuff. I didn't have any control over that. But whether your family of origin may be a blessing or a burden, but Jesus shows us what constitutes family is those who do God's, do God's will, not who you're related to. That is what constitutes family in the eyes of Jesus. So we see three groups of people again throughout this passage. Number one, Jesus' family. Jesus' family knows him better than anyone else. They know the ins and outs of how he works. They know his personality. They know what he likes, dislikes. They know everything about him. You think about Mary giving birth to Jesus and the whole experience beforehand, even with the angels, like she had a crazy experience just even getting pregnant with Jesus, much less raising him. She knows him better than anyone else. If you're a mother in the room, you can empathize with that. If you're a father in the room, even we can understand what our child says more frequently than someone else. Like, I kind of understand what Levi says. You guys have no idea. Like, let's be honest. Like, you guys have no idea what Levi's saying. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he wants a snack. Like, I, can, I know Levi. I know him. Just like Mary and his brothers and sisters know Jesus. They knew him personally. But Jesus doesn't consider them family in this text as he describes it. And so my question for you, could that be you right now? 
you know a lot about Jesus. You spent a lot of time reading the Bible, going to church even, doing a lot of really good things. Engaging with Christian community, sure, but do, do you like really know Jesus? And that's not supposed to be an indicting question. It should, it should be an exhortation. Like, I, I want to know Jesus if I do not. Because you should want to know Jesus and be a part of his family. It's an, the invitation is open to all of us. Maybe culturally, it feels like Jesus is too much. And you might be a little embarrassed of him, like his family was. His family literally comes up, Jesus, we got to get you out of here. Like you're bringing shame and embarrassment to our family. Could that be you when you start to think about following Jesus and saying yes to him amidst the culture you're engulfed in right now? Just culturally, it's not popular to be a Christian, if you didn't know that. <laughs> it's not popular to be a follower of Jesus and to submit your life to him. A second group of people this is the scribes. Like we talked about, these guys knew God's law better than everyone else. They were living it out to a T, so they thought. They were living it out better than anyone else. They were teaching it. They knew it. And they see Jesus' power on display, yet ascribe it to Satan. Crazy. Like, I don't believe any of us are out here on the street corner blaspheming God. Like, I don't think you'd be in here if that was the case. But if you were to look at their self-righteousness, their pride. I mean, I've succumbed to pride plenty of times in my life. Some I've struggled with a ton over the years. One of the reasons I almost didn't get hired with Resonate back in 2018. But could that be you right now? Could you be struggling with this sense of self-righteousness? Like, I've done everything right. I've done it all by the book. I, I, I deserve to belong in God's family. I deserve to be called family because I've done A, B, C, D. Third group of people, the disciples. I think this is who we want to be. It's who we want to be. The disciples are seated in a circle around Jesus, eagerly learning from him, submitting to his leadership. It's a beautiful picture, even if you were to look at their posture. That's who we want to be. We want to be the ones that do the will of God. On one hand, it could be really easy for us to think, well, do the will of God. Okay, I'll just do whatever God's word says over and over and over, and the more I can do, the more I will be accepted into God's kingdom, into God's family. But that could lead us really quickly into the exact path the scribes took, right? It could lead us down that same exact path. So how should we view this idea of doing the will of God? If we're going to be a part of this family that Jesus talks about, how are we going to do this? Entrance into this family has nothing to do with how much of God's will you can accomplish in your life. That is not what gets us access to this family. That's why Jesus went to the cross for us. That's why Jesus died the death that we deserve. There's no point where we could do enough of God's will to earn our salvation. That's exactly what the scribes thought. They thought that they could do, do, do as much as they could, perfectly live by God's law, and they would receive favor. They would be a part of God's family. Well, we can't do it because we've already fallen short, is what Romans 3.23 says. We've already sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard. Therefore, Jesus took on human flesh, lived, was fully God, fully man, came to earth, lived a perfect life. And when he subjected himself to the cross... In his death, 
Our, our sin is put on that cross and dies with him. So long as we confess and believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And we inherit the gift of salvation. We inherit God's family. We gain access to this family through Christ and Christ alone. The disciples are sitting around Jesus because they trusted Jesus. They loved Jesus, the person of Jesus. And ultimately, it led them to giving up their, li- their very lives for him. So the disciples' love and trust in Jesus led them to do God's will in response. And that's a very important thing for us to know as we work through this text. John 14, 21, Jesus says this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. It's the one who loves me. So our love for Jesus turns into our response, which is obedience to him, doing God's will. Comes all out of our love for Jesus as we see in the disciples. It's there, the disciples' exact response. If you remember back to me talking through the story of Levi, the tax collector, there is something about Jesus and their interactions over and over and over where Levi's love for Jesus grew and he said, I will follow you, I trust you. And ultimately it leads to moments of repentance and belief and he begins to be transformed over time. Jesus calls Levi as he was and that's what the response of being a disciple to Jesus looks like. And what this means for all of us, I think is incredibly profound in that being a disciple of Jesus means that you have a family. Being a disciple of Jesus means you have a family. This room can be your family. For those of you that have had a difficult family experience, let this room, let this group of people be your family. Let them come alongside you and care for, care for you. Do this life alongside you, encourage you. Being a disciple of Jesus means that you have family. And so what I want to do next is I want to walk through a list of um, describing characteristics of how Christians are to treat one another. I want to take a look at how God's family is intended to operate together. And as I go through this list, I'm going to talk about each one just a little bit. And I want you to think about who in this room, who in this body of believers, maybe they're not here today, think about how they have been family to you. Think about stories over the last year or so where you can say, this person has been family to me in this way. And as I walk through this list, and as you think about those, at the end of it, I'm going to have Mark pass around the microphone, and I want you to literally share with everyone how people have been family towards you. I want to encourage us and fill us with hope by your stories. I could tell stories up here all day long about how you guys are family to one another. And I I hear it and see it all, and it's amazing, and I love that part of my job. But I want you all to be filled with hope and encouragement as you hear about how you each are being family towards one another. So the first one that I thought about, love one another, John 13, 34. As Christ first loved us, we love one another. And a lot of these go into describing what love looks like, right? Next one, forgive one another. When was the last time someone in this room, someone in our church forgave you? Didn't deserve to be forgiven, but they still forgave you because Christ forgave them. They understand that they have been forgiven, therefore they ought to forgive. When was the last time you were forgiven? 
Next one, be kind and compassionate towards one another. When was the last time someone just purely kind to you? Compassionate when you're going through a difficult season. Next one, serve one another. I think you guys are incredible at serving one another. I, see, I thought of so many different stories when I wrote this one down. But when was the last time someone served you? When was the last time someone served you? Uh, encourage one another. When was the last time you just were encouraged? A couple weeks ago, or two weeks ago, I got to go on a pastor's retreat, and I had three individuals write me really encouraging notes, just really encouraging notes, and it filled my soul in a way that I haven't experienced in a long time. It was so incredible. So when was the last time someone encouraged you? Be humble and consider When's it, What's an example of what you saw someone being uh, humble and considerate? Bear one another's burdens. How has someone in this room, in this church, uh, borne your burdens alongside you, financially, spiritually, emotionally? How did someone come alongside you in that? Be patient with one another. I've got plenty of stories just in my house, how Tori's been patient with me. Uh, But how has someone been patient with you recently? And then speak the truth to one another in love. This one might be a little bit hard to communicate in that, in that someone's speaking something, a difficult truth to you, but you know from their eyes, their posture, their, their voice, that they love you deeply and want what's best for you. So they communicate difficult truth to you. Does anyone have any stories of that? And then lastly, pray for one another. I think y'all are great at this. We're gonna do this a little bit at the end of the sermon today. We're gonna spend time just praying for one another. And so if you have a story from any of these or something outside of this list, this isn't an, an exhaustive list, but I would love for you to raise your hand. I want Mark to pass around the microphone. I just want to share some stories about how you guys have been family to one another or things that you've seen secondhand. So we're going to do this for a couple of minutes. So if there's some village silence, you know, we're, we're chilling. I'm comfortable with it at this point in time. Uh, but raise your hands, and I would love to hear stories of how y'all have been family to one another. So raise your hand. Mark's going to walk around and hand you the mic. And obviously keep it like somewhat brief, you know? So I'd say my whole village prayed for me back in October when I decided to scare them. Um, My whole village showed up at the hospital for me. They're like, where is this guy? Hmm. Um, I ended up in the hospital because I just had severe stomach pain and we couldn't figure it out. So thank you guys for always praying for me. Love that. That's incredible. All the way in the back. Come on, Olivia. Um, My dad, as many of you know, has a kidney disease. Um, And last November, he had a transplant. And a lot of you, I don't, I'm not going to name all the names, but a lot of you financially gave to our family Mm. um, to help with medical bills and gas bills. Um, So my family, like my family of origin is very thankful for that. But then I'm also just grateful for the prayers and bearing the burdens with me. That's incredible. Jess can go ahead and like clap for yourself too. I, I, I don't know. But like I think these all these stories are incredible and should build you guys up, you know? Just in yeah. the practical stuff too, I feel like our church has been awesome at helping people move into their houses or move Come apartments on. and like showing up. So when we moved, it was like one load. Like everyone just filled their cars and brought stuff. And then since then too, like 
being able to go to the Watts and be like, hey, you guys have a tall ladder, right? Can we please borrow your ladder for a weekend? <laughs> and like, hey, Daniel, Ian's going to climb in this sketchy tree to like cut down these branches. And like, will you please supervise this and bring some rope and tools? So just all that support of like getting through life and being able yeah. to borrow stuff and kind of have some of that collective so you don't have to go buy a huge ladder every time you got to climb in a sketchy tree. Absolutely. I think about there's been moments where Tori and I have said, like, we should we should have our own, like, actual moving business. Like, all of us have used our Resonate trailer for multiple moves. It's it's incredible. Yeah. Um, something that I have been a part of and gotten to experience is meal trains that I think our church is really good at to the point where um, specifically when someone's having a baby, it's just not even a question that you expect that there's going to be a meal train for you because that's just what we do. And, um, yeah, I think that's become a really cool part of our culture. That's, yeah. Dude, what's, what's fun about that too is we try to set it up for other people that aren't a part of our church. And they're like, that's the weirdest thing ever. I'm like, it's the best thing ever. Let us do it for you. I promise. Yeah. Well, in my line of work, any number of things can happen with trucking from a trailer just disappearing to someone just missing an appointment. And it's really good to have a wife who can bear my burdens and be patient with me throughout the day whenever I have no one else to talk to about it. It's really nice. That's awesome. Come on, Bree. Anyone else have a story they would like to share? Uh, like six months ago, I was studying uh, for my insurance exam, and I was so overwhelmed with all the things that I needed to cram into my brain. And the girls weren't in school, and my huddle just showed up and was like, oh, drop them off for the whole day. I'll <laughs> watch your kids, and you can go study, or here's some coffee, and you should drop off your kids. And I think everyone in my huddle babysit at least twice. Mm. Just, yeah, drop them off. It was so amazing. That's awesome. Childcare is expensive, y'all. That's a real gift. Anyone else have something they would like to share? Um, I remember when we first moved here, like the day we moved here, we just showed up at a random village and we didn't really expect much because our experience with community at that point wasn't great as adults, but as soon as we walked in the room, we were like, wow, these people embraced us. They loved us from the very beginning, and it mm. was just the most special thing to be able to move somewhere new and immediately mm. um, feel like you're a part of it. So That's amazing. Tor and I were talking about that story the other day. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, mine would be forgive one another. Just with my friend Lauren, we had like we were freshman roommates, and like Christ brought us back together. So I'm very thankful for, for that. That's awesome. Yeah. Heck yeah. Well, guys, my hope is that these stories ultimately will lean us back into the love of God, who is a perfect Father. God is the perfect father that regardless of the situation that we've grown up in, experienced up to this point, whether really good or not so good, we can lean into the perfect love of God. And so that's a, that's a piece of what's available here. And just it's evidenced by those stories. That's a piece of what's available here. And of course, I want you to 
encounter Jesus daily and become an obedient disciple of his. Absolutely. Along with that, I want you to experience family as Jesus describes it like you've never experienced it before. That's one of the things that drew us into this community from the beginning, right? That is something that I think is so invaluable, and especially in this culture. And so my challenge in the form of a question for you this week is how can you be Jesus' picture of family to the people around you this week? As you leave this space, as we pray, worship a little bit more, how can you be Jesus' picture of family to the people around you? Who needs something that was on one of those lists? Who needs to be forgiven, encouraged, just loved, to grieve with? Who do you need to be family to this week? And what are you going to do about how the Spirit of God is urging you to step into it? What are you going to do about it? A couple of things that I thought about um, as I was preparing. You, you could need to join Jesus' family for the first time. And the accessibility to that family is very clear. Jesus did all the heavy lifting. All you have to do is confess and believe that Jesus is who he says he is. The gospel that we talked about a little bit earlier, the good news that Jesus came, died, and resurrected so that though we are sinful, we can have a relationship with God. So that we can be a part of that family that is accessible to you. So if that's what you need, if you need to enter into Jesus' family today, turn to the person next to you. Ask them how to enter into Jesus' family. And if you didn't come with anyone, come chat with me. This could also be stepping into how scripture commands us to interact with one another. Maybe you're the one that needs to uh, confess to someone in this body, in this church. You haven't been family to them, haven't loved them well. Maybe that's where you need to take the first step and confess. And both of you can remember the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And just as Christ has forgiven you, so your brother or sister can forgive you as well. So who can you be family to this week? That's my biggest plea with us. Let's be family together. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would continue to build this family build this family on the truth of the gospel. God, I pray that your spirit would guide us and direct us and convict us where we're off. Lord, as we aim to be obedient disciples, do you let it be rooted in our love for you, Jesus? Lord, let us not be like the scribes who desire to be perfect according to the law, but Jesus, let us rely on your perfection. Let's rely on how you perfectly lived out the law and received the grace that you've offered to us through your death and resurrection. So Lord, I, I pray that you would continue to build your family here in Boise. Honestly, God, not just within Resonate Church, but across the churches in the valley. Would you continue to build family and the picture of family that you described, Jesus. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.